Welcome back to The Built Environment. It's a podcast produced by myself, Brenna Owen, and by Marsha McLeod about systemic violence and community resistance in Canada. I just wanted to say before we start off that I am in Vancouver right now. Marsha has actually gone home to Toronto, where we're normally based, and we both really appreciate, as listeners, your patience in our production of episodes on the road this summer. I am in Kitsilano, Vancouver, which falls under the Tawasin Treaty Agreement, signed in 2007, and is located on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Coast Salish peoples. In a recent episode for CFRC Radio in Kingston, where we air Thursdays at 7pm, we gave a breakdown of Northern Gateway, and I want to recap that now. It's relevant to the bulk of today's episode, where you will hear a conversation between me, Eugene Kung, and Gavin Smith of West Coast Environmental Law. I also want to acknowledge that I reached out to the guests today very last minute after arriving in Vancouver, and they graciously made time to chat. However, because of the tight timeline, we've got an episode full of settlers here today talking about pipelines. And I want to explicitly say that it's Indigenous peoples who have had the most to lose if pipelines and other mega projects like the Site C Dam are built. They are also the people who bear the greatest burdens of legal action and resistance to these projects and who time and again have taken climate injustices to the courts and fought for decisions that benefit all people in Canada. So you may remember a good deal of media coverage of the Northern Gateway Pipeline a couple of years ago. The proposed pipeline was caught in the midst of Stephen Harper's overhaul of the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act in the wake of the 2012 omnibus budget C-38. Remember that one? The proposed pipeline would have carried bitumen from the tar sands in northern Alberta to the west coast for raw export. 300 Canadian scientists wrote a letter to then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper outlining the proven dangers, including the fact that bitumen sinks when spilled in water, and the near-total exclusion of environmental risks in the review process. Nevertheless, Northern Gateway was approved by the Federal National Energy Board, or NEB, in summer 2014, two years ago, after supposed consultations with communities, including First Nations in British Columbia. In the media fray, the Financial Post published an article in which the author Claudia Cataneo states that politicians, aboriginals, ordinary citizens are holdouts in this over-the-top melodrama that's out of step with the rest of the country's desire to diversify its export market. And the article continues that anything less than allowing the pipelines to be built, quote, presents a risk to the province that is more immediate than any risk to the environment of an oil pipeline or tanker rupture a reputation for BC as a rogue jurisdiction where the economy is held hostage by environmentalists and aboriginals who oppose lots and offer little. So more recently, we got some good news. On June 30th, 2016, just a couple of weeks ago, the court overturned approval of Enbridge's Northern Gateway project after finding that the federal government failed to properly consult First Nations impacted by the pipeline. So Stephen Harper, even though you're trying to get these pipelines pushed through, the overhaul of the process actually contributed to the pipeline being declined by the courts in the end. The ruling states, we find that Canada offered only a brief, hurried, and inadequate opportunity to exchange and discuss information and to dialogue. So again, in Harper's haste to approve the pipeline, he contributed to its legal demise. 
In this episode of The Built Environment, Eugene and Gavin delve into what this Northern Gateway victory means for upcoming changes to the federal government's environmental review and assessment processes, including consultation for Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. This pipeline was also approved by the NEB more recently, just a couple of months ago in May 2016. The pipeline has met with tremendous opposition, uh, probably most prominently in the media, the occupation of Burnaby Mountain by Indigenous activists, allies, and Burnaby residents over the course of 2014, really. And I encourage you to check out a timeline of that online. After Eugene and Gavin, we'll hear from Peter McCartney, a climate change campaigner with the Wilderness Committee in Vancouver. And we speak more about the upcoming Kinder Morgan consultations and the weight of public opinion against this pipeline. First, though, here is myself, Brenna, in conversation with Eugene and Gavin of West Coast Environmental Law. Hey, my name is Eugene Kung. Uh, I'm a staff lawyer here at West Coast Environmental Law. Uh, I uh, work with the Aboriginal Natural Resources Law Team, and in particular, uh, my focus has been on the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Expansion Project that goes from Edmonton to Burnaby. And uh, my name is Gavin Smith, and uh, I'm also on the Aboriginal Natural Resources Law team at West Coast. And uh, for the last three years, the main file that I've been working on is uh, Edbridge Northern Gateway. And so um, I think a lot of our listeners are in Ontario. So these are two high-profile uh, cases, I, I hope. I mean, maybe they are just because I'm involved in climate organizing. But um, just kind of for some context, what, what are some other kind of projects or cases that um, you've been working on out here? Well, I mean, so uh, a lot of the work that uh, West Coast does is, is law reform work. So uh, one of the big pieces for our organization is the upcoming review of environmental assessment laws, the National Energy Board, Fisheries Act, Navigable Waters Protection Act. Uh, that whole clump of, uh, of law reform is going to be an important priority for West Coast over the, the next couple of years. Um, and yeah, we've been around for, not we, uh, the two of us, but West Coast uh, has been around for uh, over 40 years now um, in, in working and engaging uh, communities with uh, legal decision making around natural resources and environmental issues. Um, and for that, in the last 40 years, we've had a lot of uh, interesting and important um, victories. I think what we're really excited about today in 2016 is um a new partnership that we've launched with the Indigenous Law Research Unit out of UVic Law School. Um, it's called RELAW, the Revitalizing Indigenous Laws for Land, Air, and Water. And, and essentially, it's it's uh, giving the tools or, or helping to facilitate training and the tools for uh, First Nations communities to express and apply their own unextinguished laws uh, on a range of of natural resource projects, either uh, specific projects or even, um, you know, from a proactive planning standpoint. Uh, and that, I think, for us is really consistent with uh, our longstanding uh, philosophy and work of working with affected communities uh, to uh, affect and change uh, decision-making around uh, the environmental and natural resources decisions that affect them. Uh, but I think in particular with Indigenous law, um, that is something that's not just tied, obviously, to natural resources and environmental stuff, but to a broader sense of what reconciliation looks like, uh, of um, understanding and unpacking colonization and dismantling it, um, you know, one, one case at a time. 
Yeah, it's, you know, so just you're mentioning Navigable, Navigable Waters Act and legal reform, you know, that's actually um, kind of what gave me the kick in the pants I needed was C-38 in 2012. So, you know, Eugene, you just mentioned kind of things we need to do to move forward, but then we're also working with this whole kind of backlog of undoing Stephen Harper's damage from the years of his majority, um, one of which is the National Energy Board, um, which had approved Northern Gateway, has recently approved Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain expansion. Um, but as I came in, you were just holding the printed copy of Northern Gateway. So um, the, the decision most recently, I think it was just like a, within two weeks ago. Um, and so what, what are your thoughts? What are your initial thoughts so far? I mean, in, in terms of the case, so this was a, um, just as a bit of context, uh, I've been one of the lawyers representing two of the nations that launched the legal challenge, and, and that uh, legal challenge was initially launched uh, two, almost two years ago exactly. Uh, and um, as part of the environmental law rollbacks from the, um, the, the, the Bill C-38 and C-45 and the, the sort of the gutting of Canada's environmental laws, it was actually... Um, had the effect of making it more difficult to launch that legal challenge. So uh, normally how it used to work was you would go to the federal court, which is sort of the lower level court, and you would just have a right to judicially review the um, a decision like an approval of a pipeline. Uh, what the um, federal government did it, through its changes to environmental laws was they did two things. They raised it up a level, so you had to go to the federal court of appeal, which effectively cut out one level of appeal. Um, but you also had to seek leave, which is basically seeking the court's permission to have the case heard. So we, we kind of had a, a two-stage process where we first had to get the court's permission to hear our case, and then we had to proceed with the case. Um, all of that to say, uh, just to give a sense of how long the process was sort of stretched out as a result of that, but also we had, in addition to the two nations we represented, there were uh, eight First Nations in total, four environmental groups, and um, Unifor, which is Canada's largest private sector union, all launched a challenge. And so uh, it was quite a, an immense case from a, uh, just a practical perspective to, to get all of that together. And so coming back to your question, I think the feeling of, uh, of first seeing that decision was, was really um, being quite happy that that all of that work over that period of time resulted in a decision that is is by no means perfect, at least from 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 my perspective. But but it it was unequivocally a win for the First Nations and uh, for the the issue of reconciliation in terms of having to um, respect rights and title and decision making processes, and for those communities that have been um, fighting this project for over a decade now to, to get that was important as well. Yeah, something we've talked about a little bit on the show is the word reconciliation and how in most dialogue around reconciliation that's coming from government in any case, um, rights and title are not really being spoken about. Um, it's more like cross-cultural dialogue. And so the legal system is one place where, for me personally, I kind of see that this could actually be established protections for communities. And um, so, but you did mention that it's not like a perfect decision. So, what are some of those areas where there could be improvement? There's more work to be done. 
Yeah, so I mean, I guess there are, there are a couple pieces to that. Um, on the one hand, so w one of the arguments uh, that was made during the case was uh, when the environmental assessment process was initially being designed for Northern Gateway, which was 2010, 2009, um, there were a number of First Nations that essentially they um, made proposals for a, a parallel review system that would look at impacts on rights and title, but that had nations as the decision makers in terms of making recommendations directly to, to cabinet. Um, th there were different sort of iterations of, of how that was proposed, but there were a number of very harsh criticisms towards the, the way that the federal government designed its process, which was essentially to come with a, here's what we've done, why don't you send us some comments on it, we'll decide if we're going to change anything and then we'll move forward. Um, and there was a lot of criticism of that approach as not meeting on a nation-to-nation -nation basis in terms of actually designing the processes through which decisions are made. Um, and the, the case didn't, uh, it, it didn't base the, the, the win, quote-unquote win, in terms of overturning the approval on, on that, what our, our clients were alleging was a failure to consult in the design of the process. Um, what it was based on was a failure to actually consult during the process that they'd set out. Um, so that that is, um, it does raise some um, concerns for those who had advocated for um, having sort of real binding obligations on the Crown to, to meet nations uh, on a nation-to-nation -nation basis in the actual design of processes for how decisions are made. Yeah, and there's, there's some really real and practical reasons behind that requirement. Um, you know, speaking from the Kinder Morgan uh, hearing perspective, you may recall, your listeners may recall that um, a couple summers ago um, when the NEB again unilaterally um, kind of announced its process and specifically announced uh, that it was going to do oral traditional uh, Aboriginal evidence uh, as, as one of the inputs into its process. Um, it, it did so unilaterally, it scheduled it unilaterally, and then it got a huge amount of uh, pushback and, uh, and expressions of frustration because they of course scheduled it uh, right during the peak of harvesting season. So fish and hunting and berry harvesting and all, the, all of these uh, really, really important moments where uh, most of uh, you know the, most of the folks who would have participated and shared uh, their oral histories and their, uh, and their, um, and their uh, teachings uh, with the panel we're going to be doing actually practicing what they were going to be talking about, right? So instead of instead of instead of practicing the reason that they were opposed to the pipeline, they had to come and talk, tell the board about it. The board did uh, push back by a couple months those dates in order to uh, address those concerns. Um, but it's unfortunate that you know even um, this summer, in the coming months, we're seeing uh, it all over again. Um, you're you're probably aware that there's. Uh, supplementary process that um, the Trudeau government has put in place on Kinder Morgan in order to try and um, undo some of the damage uh, done by the National Energy Board in terms of public confidence and so on. And we all are aware of, um, of the very uh, well-known um, problems with that. But they've done the exact same thing. They're going to be having hosting First Nations roundtables uh, with very little notice um, right during, you know, July, August, um, kind of peak harvesting season. So uh, it's unfortunate that it doesn't seem like those lessons have been learned. Um, but I do think that there's an opportunity moving forward, both with this, um, you know, these promises to re, uh, reset the relationship 
between the Crown, the federal government, and and First Nations governments, um, but also to reform the environmental assessment and regulatory pr processes like the NEB, all of these things that were undone by, uh, by a former Prime Minister Harper. Um, we have an opportunity to actually change that to inc today to in, in the reform to incorporate uh, uh, First Nations decision-making uh, from the very early stages, as has been suggested in, in, in a number of, um, of, of cases on, on the issue. So um, there are a lot of challenges, for sure. I think the NEB uh, remains uh, a very broken and flawed and indeed um, captured, industry-captured regulator. Um, but at the same time, we're kind of in this moment where at there's at least an opportunity to not just undo um, what Prime Minister Harper did, but actually to move towards an, a, a new era of environmental assessment and regulatory regime um, that, that takes a bigger picture look at these projects and doesn't um, just scope out the problems so that they can f um, push a project forward. Yeah, one of the most ridiculous things I think I heard about the old consultation among what you've just mentioned is that climate change wasn't actually allowed to be discussed. That's right. So I just have a quick actual follow-up question for you, Gavin. Um, so if the decision, the win, had been based on um, that more nation-to-nation, -nation, um, the failure to consult in that form, like would that have set a legal precedent then? or? Well, I mean, so arguably there already there, there is no doubt that there are a number of cases mm -hmm. that that have stated explicitly that consultation in the design of decision making processes or environmental assessment processes is required. So that that is a that is a, those precedents exist. Mm -hmm. I, I think what happened in this case was that the process that the federal government carried out, the court found to be sufficient to um, to to meet that right. that requirement. Um, and I would sort of echo Eugene that I think that the the where we are now in terms of all of the gutting of the environmental laws having created enough momentum societally for us to really have a once in a generation opportunity to to reform as a package what federal environmental law looks like in Canada. I think that really provides an opportunity to to build in from the ground up the the foundation for nation to nation decision making. Um, in design and discharge of environmental assessments in a way that um, you didn't see in Northern Gateway. And I, and I think sort of actually it, um, it demonstrates some of the, the imperfections or shortcomings in having law um, be developed solely by sort of court precedent and then the federal government's deciding how it's going to implement it and then it gets challenged and then you have another precedent and so on is that it's done in a... It's, a, it's an unpredictable way to go through that kind of decision-making process. Um, it can be sort of very piecemeal and, uh, and people don't know in advance what to expect and so on. And uh, So I think that where we are now is really given everyone an opportunity to, to start from a common understanding of, of, of where First Nations and the Crown are meeting to decide the scope and, uh, and process for this kind of environmental assessment decision. And having that certainty and that um, you know that predictability, I think that has been lacking for uh, a long time. Um, it, it's actually good for investors too, and good for these businesses because their biggest challenge is the risk and uncertainty that these flawed processes uh, that kind of overlook uh, very strong and, and constitutionally protected First Nations opposition to projects 
imposes on, on, on them too. So uh, that's not necessarily our perspective, but I think it's important to also recognize that this is not just um, uh, some an idealist uh, way of looking at it, but that has very practical um, and pragmatic uh, impacts on, on decision making. You're so right. That's not the argument that I normally make when I'm talking to people about pipelines. But sometimes if you're talking to someone who is coming from an economic perspective, it's like you have to make that the rational case that the juxtaposition between environment and economy is just like so ludicrous in so many ways. Does that frustrate you guys like as as lawyers? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I mean, it's interesting too to see... um, you know, I feel like the dialogue around these things, these types of projects, is potentially evolving somewhat. But but to really year after year keep seeing it reduced to those sort of very simplistic, you know, oppositional frameworks for discussing these kind of issues is is quite frustrating. And I, and I do think that uh, to to some extent, projects such as Kinder Morgan or Northern Gateway have because they have been so controversial. They, they have actually maybe moved it up a level where it's, people are talking at a societal basis around, you know, what does it mean to, for example, have to respect decision-making rights and obligations of First Nations in a, in a like, a large-scale project kind of regime? Or what does it mean to be looking at the cumulative effects of multiple projects when you're impacting the territories of the nations in in whether it's Alberta or Northeast BC that are, that are subject to um, the sort of extraction end of this and so on. And so... Um, I, yeah, I would say it's definitely frustrating, but at the same time, it does feel like the conversation is starting to evolve. Mm. And I'll say from from my perspective of having had the privilege and honor of, of being exposed to some of the processes behind Indigenous uh, decision-making and teachings and law, Indigenous law, um, is that the shift uh, that would be required well, in some ways, may be seen as radical, is actually not that radical. Um, it's a really a shift from, um, you know, A, making the rules of the game only and solely about maximizing profit, um, and with that, you know, um, the system that we currently have of kind of externalizing some of the true costs, uh, of uh, scoping out some of the problematic uh, uh, issues um, and, in order to uh, move projects through a regulatory system uh, it, towards something that that doesn't discount profit necessarily. Um, it takes it often takes it into account, uh, and maybe the uh, the definition of what profit means may be broader. But in fact, that that just that just doesn't put it at the pinnacle of what all of this uh, all of these decisions should be about. And I think that shift is actually, like I said earlier. Um, bigger than um, resources or natural environment, I think that same um, shift uh, applies as much to our dis- discussion around healthcare or education, or um, you know, the role of elders and children in our society, right? And so, um, to me, that is what makes me hopeful about about um, what's happening in the discussions that are, that, that are happening right now. At the same time, there is still very much urgency around these pipelines in particular, around their connection to the tar sands and that connection of tar sands expansion to this broader uh, climate uh, change uh, challenge. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's definitely a lot of layers there. Definitely yeah. it is frustrating <laughs> to see it often reduced 
into these little silos. And I think we have to also recognize as employees of an environmental organization who've been, who's been around for uh, 40 years and who's part of the environmental movement as it is uh, today, I think there's also needs to be recognition within the environmental movement that um, the act of um, pushing the environment as an issue um, in order to make it politically uh, salient uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s has actually plateaued in terms of its usefulness and the, and the climate movement is a really clear example to me of how just talking about an environmental issue in terms of, of the climate is not going to get us to the solutions uh, on the scale and the speed that we need and um, for that reason I think it's really important to, to really both incorporate um, a much deeper justice analysis within environmental movements and, and across gender, race, uh, and so on, and class, um, you know, uh, towards, uh, um, you know, a much broader social movement um, that's not just about being green and recycling. Totally. Climate justice. <laughs> um, so I guess a couple things, but um, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of those, the goals of, like, legal protection for environment and communities, and then societal shift. But maybe first, just to dig a little bit deeper into this, it seems like, um, the proceedings on Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain pipeline proposal are kind of um, in this strange gray area between Harper's NEB and like maybe the future of environmental consultation and assessment. Yeah. And so could you talk, Eugene, a little bit more about what's in store like in the next few months? Sure. So uh, I think you're, you're very right. That's a great way of describing it kind of in between these two regimes. Um, what uh, Prime Minister Trudeau campaigned on was uh, a promise to fix the broken regulatory system um, that obviously included an acknowledgement and recognition that uh, the current system w uh, was broken and needed improvement. Uh, however, one of the first things um, that, uh, that they did on this file was to confirm that uh, there would be no do-over, or they wouldn't even pause or stop the NEB's process on Kinder Morgan, which was disappointing for sure, uh, because it was so flawed and enjoyed so little public uh, um, support. Uh, I think, you know, the moment that the NEB and one of um, Prime Minister Harper's last acts, it turned out, um, as Prime Minister, was to appoint uh, Stephen Kelly, who was the uh, consultant for Kinder Morgan on their economic case to appoint him to the National Energy Board while the National Energy Board was reviewing his evidence. Now it was a different panel of course and they've gone through all kinds of uh, uh, motions and, and, and attempts to try and solve that but um, it was uh, certainly a, a clear moment of, of the problems um, and how deep they are within the NEB. Um, so what we had in the meantime was this, uh, these um, announcements of uh, a supplementary process. Um, there was going to be a ministerial panel announced, and they were going to uh, clean up, uh, you know, all the loose ends from the National Energy Board. And um, as 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 has been said a number of times, it's it's pretty hard to unscramble an egg, and and this was the really difficult task ahead of them. Um, so in the meantime, the NEB gave its recommendation in May. Um, that was. Uh, um, appealed uh, by seven different um, uh, judicial reviews uh, of the NEB decision. Um, and now we're kind of moving in the next uh, couple months into these summer meetings, uh, which uh, is are being updated as we speak. Um, uh, just this morning, I, I had to fill out some more updates because um, I'm 
we're sharing some of this information with our supporters uh, on how to participate. And it's been really uh, quite a, a slapdash effort at, uh, at unscrambling this egg. Um, and we'll see how it plays out. So there are a number of um, of cities along the pipeline route that are going to be visited by this ministerial panel. Um, there's an opportunity uh, for the public to participate, but it's still not clear how. Um, and, um, you know, we'll see how that moves forward. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, there's been a clear recognition that this process is not a substitute for Crown consultation uh, with First Nations. They've been very clear about that, even though that there's going to be a lot of First Nations um, flavor to the to the summer meetings, uh, I think. Um, but those, you know, these things are kind of happening in parallel, all kind of culminating in a December uh, decision by cabinet. So these are all going to be inputs into that. Um, and that's where, you know, that's a lot of work to happen between now and then. Consult the public, restore their faith in the regulatory process, start a new relationship with First Nations, uh, and consult on a, in a meaningful way with all of the nations along the route. Um, it's an ambitious plan or an ambitious uh, t uh, number of tasks ahead. But I think, a lot, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, we're... Um, it's that December decision is actually just going to be the start yeah. of the next round of litigation, and it's going to be a a bit of a mishmash, um, as you've uh, already uh, referred to. You know, we have the Harper uh, era National Energy Board legislative regime. Um, one of the challenges coming out of the Emmerich decision, of course, was they looked at their at the regime um, and they correctly uh, uh, identified that cabinet was the decision maker here. Um, you know, the role of the NEB and the, and the JRP uh, joint review process mm -hmm. was diminished under the under Harper. And in fact, um, some of the early um, um, judicial reviews were dismissed in that decision. And I think that that's um, uh, going to be a challenge moving forward for the seven JRs that were filed, but at the same time, um, I don't think I'm not. I don't know of anyone who thought that those JRs were going to be the end of of, of this of this um, of this issue. Um, it's very clearly now uh, the December uh, timeline, um, and um, I think we can expect that there will almost certainly be further litigation after yeah. that. And what happens in those cases is actually going to be really informed by what happens over the next six months. So, um, you know, I'm sure um, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and his cabinet are aware of this. And, um, and I hope that they're going to uh, be uh, working to fulfill their duty uh, to its fullest. Um, but at the same time, I think as a practical reality, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be challenging to... Um, to engage with the public and restore their faith while they're, um, you know, chasing their kids around on the beach or um, going off to camp and fish and and enjoy, uh, you know, our Canadian summers. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, that's a tough task ahead, certainly, and, and there's going to be a lot of work uh, um, from the federal government. Um, at the same time, a lot of nations on Kinder Morgan and on Enbridge as well have have very clearly and um, uh, and unreservedly banned tar sands projects 
using their own laws and I'm I won't I don't expect that any uh, further meetings or consultation are going to dramatically change yeah. change those decisions um, because they're so grounded in um, in within you know the decision making and, and identities really of, of, of these nations so we're kind of seeing the federal government is going to try not to fuck up the <laughs> the consultation process uh, because that could harm them in the courts later to yeah. put it in a nutshell yeah. I suppose and they've had a I mean it's <laughs> been a it hasn't a very low bar has been set for them mm-hmm. and I think one of the another positive thing coming out of the Enbridge decision was a recognition that not only was the approach of the Harper government inadequate constitutionally it they said it was well below the bar so we don't even know where the floor is that's how far Harper was mm-hmm. um, maybe that makes it a little bit easier for Trudeau but at the same time I think it's also clear that um, from the rhetoric that um, the liberal government has been using that they're not aiming for the floor they're aiming for the ceiling I don't stars or the stars <laughs> Yeah. Certainly the rhetoric. So, um, you know, I think uh, that will be, uh, that's a question to be determined in a future, probably in a future court case. Do you see, um, like, what do you see as maybe the potential areas that the Northern Gateway decision might influence the process or the outcome or the decision in December? Like, did anything jump out at you or is it just kind of like going to be considered separately? Well, I mean, a couple things that it certainly did that are going to be highly relevant for the Kinder Morgan scenario is it, it actually it set out several specific flaws with how the federal government carried out consultation that that are basically part of the same regime that had previously been planned for Kinder Morgan sort of before these interim principles were sort of you know playing their way out and and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, one of the things that um, were raised by a number of First Nations were uh, not just impacts, what were called biophysical impacts, or impacts on lands and waters that could indirectly affect a First Nations rights and title through fishing impacts or so on, but a, a number of nations also said uh, there are actually impacts on their decision-making rights themselves. So they have, you know, they have title, they have they have governance authority in areas, and and by um, making decisions that disregarded their decision-making authority th- that there was not adequate consultation because those were sort of pushed to the side and it was just a focus on the, 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 those biophysical elements. Um, and one of the things that the court did was <clears throat> it said that the, um, the federal government is obliged to, or it cannot, it cannot just move straight to mitigation. So it can't say, you've raised concerns about your title and governance and so on, but we're going to, all of our conditions have ensured that the project is going to mitigate its impacts through X, Y, and Z. Therefore, we're going to, we wash our hands of this and continue. What the court said, you can't do that. You actually have to listen to the specific rights that have been raised by specific First Nations. You have to engage with those particular rights that have been raised. And if you're going to, for example, um, depart from or disregard a nation's own uh, title, assertions of title and um, and governance authority, or you're going to uh, make a decision that counteracts decisions that nations have made to um, say that this project is not prohibited in their territory. You have to you have to engage with that directly, and you have to provide reasons for why you're doing it, um, <clears throat> which certainly didn't happen in the Northern Gateway scenario. But I, but I think for Kinder Morgan, that places quite a heavy obligation on um, the federal government to um, 
rather than just moving to the here are all the conditions that are going to make this project fantastic, to actually having to say that a particular First Nation has raised a concern with their um, impacts on their ability to make decisions in their own territory. We as the federal government have heard this because X, Y, and Z, and you know, if they were to seek to approve it, we've chosen to depart from that or to um, disregard that because X, Y, and Z. And if they don't actually engage with that issue, they're putting themselves at a at quite a, a serious risk of um, <clears throat> of not meeting their duty to consult as set out in the Northern Gateway case. I, I think that the what that means is that if they are actually meeting their duty, they're going to have to confront some very difficult issues about nations that have simply said we are not permitting this project in our territories, and they can't they can't run from that in the way that they did in the Northern Gateway scenario. So uh, I guess my final question would be just to kind of touch base briefly on the um, societal shift that we had talked about. So you know. It's not, as we had mentioned, it's siloed, it's polarized, it's not even really about these specific projects. It's really about what government believes is public opinion. And, you know, we saw Rachel Notley flip-flop because of plummeting oil prices on, on Northern Gateway. Trudeau himself, you know, on pipelines, you know, had previously come out pretty strongly against Northern Gateway, and then we weren't sure. And so... Um, what does West Coast environmental law do in addition to being in the courts um, to kind of sway uh, public opinion or to educate? Um, and why do you think that that's also important? Well, I think um, most of our work is actually not in the courts at all. Um, Gavin uh, spent has probably spent more time uh, in the courts and working on court cases than uh, probably the rest of West Coast lawyers uh, combined over the certainly over the last year, um, uh, and part of the reason for that is that um, we, uh, as an organization, uh, like I said earlier, are are working towards changing the rules of the game and changing the way in which decision making is made. And of course, a big part of that is. Um, both working with uh, indigenous communities, which we do, but also um, working with the broader uh, Canadian uh, uh, society, and, uh, and in particular in BC, where we're based in Coast Salish territories uh, in Vancouver, um, but but also uh, on a broader level. And I think, um, just to come back to it, the point a point I was making earlier, I think it's it's actually uh, a bigger shift then or it's not just about these specific projects or even the environment um, this is a, a, the possibilities within this and, and, and embedded within it are um, are have a much broader implications on kind of Canadian society Canadian identity the the idea uh, uh, for me uh, of growing up uh, here in Burnaby uh, and and believing that Canada was a place of justice and fairness and equality, um, you know, is an ideal that we can still work towards, but I think it can't happen before first um, coming to terms with and actually reconciling the, our colonial history. And so where these particular projects, and I think the environmental movement at large, uh, actually is quite useful and, and, and in some ways ahead of uh, the game, is in recognizing the power and the value and the strength of, uh, of, of these decisions and this decision-making and the, and the thoughtfulness and worldview that informs them because I think it 
is applicable to a much broader scale. Um, that's a little part of our role is is to, as non-Indigenous uh, folks, to uh, to normalize it, to talk about it uh, in a way that doesn't seem scary. Because I think for some people it does seem very scary. It it, it can fundamentally change um, their outlook on, on folks. And so, from my perspective in particular, um, a lot of my work, uh, a lot of the uh, the folks who are opposed to Kinder Morgan are. Um, what I call in the most, I know some people don't say this in a derogatory way, I say this in the most loving way uh, because um, I was raised by one, but I'm talking like Bur- Burnaby soccer moms <laughs> are, are just as passionate and frustrated and, and, and opposed to the project as, um, as Ta'a Amy George, um, from, who, who coined the term warrior up, um, or at least who made it popular in terms of Kinder Morgan. Um, who's a residential school survivor and who, you know, who has very strong views about, um, about Canada as a place of justice. I think in, in, in bringing together these two potential, you know, two, two groups who might not have otherwise connected, um, part of our role and, and my role as someone who's both working on that file, who grew up in Burnaby, who was raised by a soccer mom, um, who can bring and bring those, uh, that perspective forward, uh, again, in a way that, um, that is welcoming and opening and hopeful as opposed to a, a way that's scary and challenging and um, xenophobic. Yeah, and I mean, I think building on that too, in terms of thinking about, I think the work that West Coast is doing and, and the sort of the, the vision that I would like have for the future in terms of where this work can take us is, is moving beyond having fights about particular projects and, and getting to a place where there's there's really meaningful co-management of um, particular you know eco regions or areas that incorporate decision making authority of of First Nations, but also allow non-Indigenous people and communities to to have a say and to feel involved. Um, and that starts from a baseline of what is the what is important in this region to us, and how do we ensure that what we need is set out as a baseline of what is going to be protected and how did different proposals for projects plug into that not starting from here's a specific project can we do it like what impacts will it have on the environment and so in terms of i i think there's sort of two really broad prongs of work that i'm excited about the west coast is is doing that i think are is helping to move us towards that vision and um one of those is uh, sort of mentioned it briefly is this idea of um, reforming environmental assessment to look at cumulative effects, sustainability assessment, and that's, I think we do have an opportunity to, to really advocate to, rather than starting from the, the lens of what is this project, starting from the lens of what is this place and what does it mean to, to the people that, that are there, um, and how do we ensure that that, is, that that is sort of the baseline for how we're making decisions. That's one prong. And the other prong is the one that Eugene was talking about, uh, earlier on, within, which is the the Relaw project, and and I, uh, this sort of work that West Coast um, uh, does in the field of sort of indigenous law, which is distinguished from Aboriginal law, and that it's the laws of the actual nations themselves, is to um, both educate uh, people in Canada about the fact that First Nations already have their own systems of law and governance, but also as lawyers to 
help provide tools to nations to effectively translate their laws and governance systems into ways that will be better understood by corporations or the federal and provincial government. And so um, West Coast is really trying to do everything it can to help work with nations to stand up their own laws um, and to, to bring those to bear in a respectful sort of interface between the Canadian legal system and, and indigenous systems of governance. And I think that certainly that is going to be necessary if we're getting to a place where we're saying what is this place and, and what is our relationship to it and, and how we make decisions legally. There's a that 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 reminds me of a, a passage from the trial uh, decision from the Sokotin uh, Williams versus BC case. Um, so this was the following the original trials uh, over five years in the making. The judge went and spent time in Sokotin territory in Hanigotin and um, was writing about um, the challenges of um, dealing with an oral tradition. Uh, and a, within a written tradition, and particularly receiving evidence, which was uh, in particular what he was talking about, and and um, the late Justice Vickers said in, in that in, in in talking about that that in order to fully engage with Indigenous law, uh, Canadian courts had to first go through their own process of decolonization. And when I first read that in a Canadian decision, I almost fell out of my chair. Um, the idea that that was recognized. Um, I don't think I'd seen the word decolonization in a court in a court decision ever, or even even really in mainstream anything, <laughs> you know, um, outside of um, certain activist circles um, and academic circles. Um, that you know, it's not really a wide widely used term. And so, th to me, I think that actually really captures part of what we're uh, we're trying to do. Uh, and and it's not just us, obviously. What we're trying to help to facilitate. Um, is is the decolonization of Canadian environmental laws, but I think um, laws generally. So I guess I know we've talked a little bit about it, but like in a few words, um, don't want to take up too much more of your time, but what in an ideal world would decolonizing our legal system look like? Like, in, I know that's like <laughs> impossible to answer in a few words, but like what are some key areas where you're like, this needs to change? Um, constitutional reform... Uh, in maintaining our pluralistic legal tradition, but incorporating indigenous laws uh, as uh, one of the founding pluralistic legal traditions. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I might almost uh, flip that question around in a sense of like, what do I as a lawyer need to learn in order to help decolonize the law? And I think that that the answer to that question doesn't lie in court cases. It actually it lies in building relationships with 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 First Nations, but also non-Indigenous people and communities, and how they're interacting with with the lands and waters that they care about. And and I think starting from that place of of relationship with uh, with those people and also with the with the place is really where those answers are going to come. You're listening to The Built Environment. My name is Brenna, one of the hosts and producers, and I am 
currently in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I sat down with Wilderness Committee campaigner Peter McCartney, who offers his perspective on Prime Minister Trudeau's approach to environmental assessment and consultation with communities. He reminds us that on the election campaign trail in 2015, Prime Minister Trudeau said explicitly that his government's overhaul of Prime Minister Harper's National Energy Board would apply to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So instead, hearing continues as they would have under Harper, and the NEB approved Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion a couple of months ago. So we'll hear from Peter now. So yeah, I guess maybe just first off, if you could introduce yourself and a little bit about where we are right now with Wilderness Committee. Sure. Uh, so my name is Peter McCartney. I'm the climate campaigner for the Wilderness Committee, um, and we've been on, working on Kinder Morgan for about six years. Um and so we, you know, we've been working to get the word out. We're mostly an education organization, is, uh, letting people know this is going on and, uh, and mobilizing communities against it. Where we're at right now, we're at a very interesting place with Kinder Morgan in that we have a new federal government who has come along that uh, has, takes a very different tactic than the Harper government, at least outwardly. <laughs> During the election, they promised that they were going to scrap the NEB process and restart it for both of the pipelines that are proposed in BC, um, which they didn't do, uh, which was really unfortunate and uh, a big disappointment for the environmental community. Um, they've tacked on this, uh, this extra process that everything we can tell so far is that it's, uh, it's pretty thrown together haphazardly, and um, it, I don't think it really constitutes meaningful uh, public engagement at all. I talked um, to Eugene and Gavin a little bit about how it's almost become less about specific projects, even though we are concentrating a lot of work to stopping a, a whole lot of work was done into getting this decision about Northern Gateway, and a lot mm -hmm. of work is going to be going into fighting against Trans Mountain expansion, but it's it's really just ideological. Like It comes down to whether you're on side with big oil or not. And I think some people are in Occupy that center ground of like, yeah, like it's a bad idea, but it's better than rail. How do you navigate being a campaigner for a specific project, but then also fighting against these ideological forces? As a climate campaigner, I mean, you, you watch some of the some of the impacts that are already happening in um, in our climate system, and it's food prices rising, and it's. Um, droughts in the summer and rivers so low that the salmon can't swim up them and it's um, uh, forests across the province being devastated by new pests that have just arrived you know you can't you can't possibly think that expanding the tar sands um, has any place in the world and it's a weird moment that we've reached where governments actually agree <laughs> um, that's actually kind of the strangest thing is when the Paris Climate Agreement happened and, okay, we confirmed that the governments of the world are going to do everything they can to try and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. All of us were kind of like, excellent, but do they know what that means? <laughs> yeah, and like, actually, let's see the policies that are going to enable us to meet our commitments. Exactly. Yeah. If we're going to make 1.5 degrees, mm -hmm. the tar sands need to be over by 2020. You know, that's a very clear limit, and that, that was from research from the Carbon Tracker Institute. You know, we, we've we only got five or ten years, maybe, to prevent catastrophic climate change. 
and that we're even talking about building pipelines in this day and age is absolute insanity. It's kind of like using floppy disks, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, and the other thing is, there's so much better alternatives. Yeah. You know, 30 years ago when this conversation should have been happening, uh, you maybe couldn't argue that we could we could kick fossil fuels right away that easily, but now we can and we are and. Because we've been talking about these really large pipelines, mm-hmm. and I think in Ontario, at least, people say, okay, you know, Northern Gateway was quashed in the courts. Oh, like, let's hypothetically say I would expect the same thing to happen to Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain expansion. Mm-hmm. Like, I do not believe, thanks to people like you and Indigenous uh, frontline campaigners, like, this, this pipeline won't be built. Mm-hmm. However... Northern BC is like riddled with LNG development, current and proposed. And so how do you try and communicate that to people? And what do people in BC feel about LNG? Because it's Christy Clark's, like, apparently her solution to, like, clean energy. <laughs> it's unreal. The the public information battle we have had to, to fight over LNG and to be talking about a brand new fossil fuel industry in the background, in the climate context that we're at, it boggles my mind. Um, In terms of what British Columbians feel about LNG, I don't think people really grasp what it is yet, to be honest. Um, And and I should caveat that in saying that there's there's widespread opposition to fracking. Everyone pretty much gets that fracking is this insane way of extracting natural gas and it's terrible for carbon emissions and ruins our water and devastates the land base. But when you talk about LNG, we don't see majority opposition yet. And I think, uh, you know, part of my job as a campaigner is to really make that link for people that, you know, all of this gas for these LNG terminals is coming from frack wells in Northeast BC. And that uh, LNG is sort of the next giant conversation we need to be having about climate change in this province is you know how could we possibly be building this and then it's also so much tougher because the government's main line has been that somehow this will benefit the climate that it'll actually get our markets off of coal and switch them on to gas which is just a preposterous argument when you when you burn you know gas versus coal there are less emissions in the gas, but when you crack open shale rock to release gas and have some of it escapes and then use the gas to power this process to get it to the coast and freeze it down to a negative 160 degrees Celsius and then ship it across the Pacific, that whole lifetime impact of LNG is actually worse than coal over the short term. Um, so Christy Clark is really... Uh, lying through her teeth when uh, when we uh, we hear her talk about LNG being any sort of clean energy solution. Especially considering, you know, I was talking to a few friends who are from BC, and BC has massive hydro capacity, and also, I think, um, the highest potential for geothermal in North America. And, uh, you know, the weird thing about the energy conversation in this province is that British Columbians are using less and less energy. Like we don't, we're actually to a point where we don't need any of these 
massive energy projects. Um, it's 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 not like we even need the electricity. We've already you know we have hydrodynes that for better or worse have been there for decades and uh, are continuing to supply us with energy. And that kind of brings in sight C. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always it's a very tricky because some people in British Columbia see sight C as um, or it's painted as this is going to be clean energy and there's there's nothing clean about flooding an entire river, clear cutting and flooding an entire river valley so that um, we can have power to power the tar sands and fracking operations in northeast BC. What are you excited about in the next little while? What am I excited about? Actually, I'm pretty excited to see public meetings in British Columbia where people can come out and, and speak out against the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Despite the fact that this pipeline panel has, for better or worse, half-assed um, their process, uh, I think think we're going to see, see a lot of people out um, just defending their way of life in this province. And that's really what we're doing, I think, is that... Um, our life is so intimately tied to the coast here and that uh, that we have to stand up for it. I think you, you know, it's, it might be a little bit different than under Harper as well, because when I was in Paris, something that I found was that um, the liberal government representatives who were quite newly elected um, and public servants who had maybe been to cops before were confused as to why the Canadian youth delegation and some other Canadian youth were not we're like mad at the liberal government. <laughs> they were they want approval. Like I think this current government is actually like desperately seeking approval. And so maybe it will be a little bit different during the consultation process um, where they'll be embarrassed to have these complaints and testimonies fall on deaf ears. You're absolutely right. Um, there's nothing this government wants to do more than distance themselves from the Harper government. And they want to be the government that, you know, listens to people and it's all sunny ways. Um, and we just haven't seen really any change in terms of the way they are, they're actually operating. They've, uh, they're saying things that are good, but we, we haven't seen that manifest. So I think they've really miscalculated the level of, uh, of what this will cost them in British Columbia in terms of our international reputation. We, we're already, we hear from Americans all the time that have, you know, they're not far away, they're a heck of a lot closer than Ottawa, that that tell us that this, this is a sea that we share, there's an arbitrary border that has been shoved through here, but but if, if your prime minister, he's supposed to be this good guy, we, we hear about him in the media as, you know, uh, this wonderful pretty man that will save Canada from from its uh its reputation on climate change and anyway there's a lot of uh there's a lot of opportunity to really hold their feet to the fire on this
Thank you for tuning in to The Built Environment. This is our seventh episode of, I guess, what is an eight-episode series one, although we're going to be launching right into series two, uh, back-to-back. You can hear us on soundcloud.com. You can also subscribe to The Built Environment on iTunes and our RSS feed for Android users who want to listen to The Built Environment on the phone can also be found on SoundCloud. It's soundcloud.com slash built environment. You can also visit our website, www.thebuiltenviro.com, and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at Built Enviro. My name is Brenna. Thanks as always for tuning in, and we'll be back next week with new programming. <laughs>